Father, it is because of your great power and sovereign rule over the earth that we trust in you. No matter what may happen in this world, no matter how dark it may seem, both on a worldwide level or national level, but also probably more poignantly on a personal level. We trust you. Lord, we come to you asking that our problems go away, that our pains be taken away, that our relational issues be resolved. But Lord, in the end, we ask that knowing not only must we be obedient to you, but in the end, you are in charge. And so we trust you. We obey you and we trust you and believe in whatever comes our way ultimately is for your glory and our benefit. So, Lord, may we trust in you today. Help us as we study your word today, particularly as it comes to false religion. Lord, may we not be tempted in any way, and may we learn how to think about these things, analyze these truths, talk about these things, and especially when it comes to evangelizing those who are caught up in their own false religion, be it a formal religion or something that is more akin to a worldview or a world or negative or false philosophy of life. We pray, Lord, we would be faithful to stand for truth and pronounce truth, announce truth until the day we die. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's wonderful to be here to worship God together by opening His Word, singing it, reading it, studying it with the intent to obey. So let's do that now. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Today we're back up on the Temple Mount with Jesus and His disciples, and the theme is still in this chapter, the folly of false religion. So far, there has been little conversation between Jesus and those who promulgate the false religion of the day, false Judaism. And Jesus had bumped into them from time to time, but now there is a full-on confrontation, and He will spend His time up on the Temple Mount speaking and having this debate, really giving us an example of why that fig tree, that false religion, is to be cursed. So today we have this direct confrontation, this debate, the leaders of Israel's religion, and Jesus clearly unveils for everyone to see their folly. And that's what we're going to do today. How does Jesus lay this out? Well, first, it was this conversation we see about John the Baptist, and he gives a a follow-up parable, and it's about their uh, listening or their obedience to the words of John the Baptist. Then he gives another much longer parable. Again, it's about them. Again, it's about the false religion of the day. And we'll look at that next week. But this week, just this discussion of John, which bleeds into that first parable. So let's read this together. It begins in verse 23 of Matthew 21. Follow along as I read aloud. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word 
of God. Before we get into this, I feel that at least once in a study of a gospel, you have to take some time to break down the authorities of Israel in that day, the leadership of Israel in that day. If, you know, think about leadership today. If you're 10 years old or older, you're at least vaguely familiar with America's leadership, local leadership. You have president in the Supreme Court, the legislature. You have a couple different parties vying for authority and leadership. You have maybe just a broad understanding. Maybe you don't know all the nuances and the uh, details about what's happening in leadership, but at least you have a, a broad understanding of how leadership operated and operates in our day. Now, the same will be true for the people who first read Matthew's gospel. And for that matter, any one of the four gospels, as they talk about leadership, they're assuming that the people who are reading it understand, at least in a basic sense, the leadership structures of that day. Now, here we are now, 2,000 years removed, and we don't know how all these different leaders and different titles of different leaders fit in, so I just want to give you a, a primer. And let me just say, it's far more complicated and nuanced and blended than what I'm going to present to you, but what I want to give you is just sort of a starting point for understanding leadership in Jesus' day. And I think this is important for when you come to a question about Jesus' authority and, and the authorities, the so-called authorities are questioning Jesus' authority. You have to understand what's happening here. So the best way to do this is to put four categories of leadership in your mind. I think this will help in terms of understanding leadership in that day. The first category would be what you might call scriptural leadership. They derive their leadership from what is said in Scripture. If you look in the Bible, there is a way that the people of Israel were supposed to organize themselves. There were authorities in the Bible, and it, it came from the Old Testament, mostly from Mosaic law. What did you have? Well, you had, first of all, the Levites. The Levites were uh, sons of the tribe of Levi. They were descendants. They were in the tribe of Levi. If you go back to the Old Testament, what you find out is that the Levites did not receive a direct inheritance from God. Rather, they received their cities, their dwelling places from the other people in Israel. In other words, God provided uh, the cities and the, the property and the land to everyone else except for the Levites. And then the people were supposed to give that part of their portion of their uh, 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 inheritance from God to the Levites. The Levites, their responsibility was to live among the people all across Israel. They didn't have a zone like a, a tribe or a county they lived in. They lived all across Israel because they were to, to minister the Word of God to the people of God where they lived. That's what the Levites did to help people understand the Word of God. Those are the Levites. And you had Levites in Jesus' day, people who had descended from the tribe of Levi. You also had another subgroup of the Levites, which are the priests. Priests are, yes, Levites, but they are also sons of Aaron. So they draw their lineage to a particular Levite, the brother of Moses, Aaron. Priests, of course, were not just in charge of, of getting the word to the people, but actually the worship, the sacrifices, what happened up at the temple or the tabernacle originally. That's what the priests were supposed to do. They were to, to guide in terms of the corporate worship. They were to, to come and to gather the people and to do specific things, and they understood what was to be done and, and ways to handle things, just to understand, really be experts on the Word of God as it pertains to corporate worship. Another subset in terms of scriptural authority would be the chief priest. The chief priest, of course, was an individual who was in essence, an authority over all the priests and all the Levites. He was the one that would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and provide that offering for atonement for the people of Israel. That was the chief priest. Now, sometimes you'll see, and even today you'll see it says chief priests with an S, a plural on it, and that is because uh, people's terms would end and they would have an entourage. So, for instance, in the death of Jesus, we'll come across these two characters, Annas and Caiaphas, and it'll call Annas a chief priest. Well, he was a chief priest, but a former chief priest. It's kind of like how we always call presidents presidents, even though they're not the current president. Well, we continue to call them presidents. Chief priests will maintain that title until their death. So Annas was not the acting chief priest, but they would consider him the chief priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the acting chief priest. 
And so that's why sometimes we see it in plural, chief priest, because it will include the chief priest or any former chief priest and, and, and possibly an entourage that was with them that would, would speak on their behalf or be with them at that time. So these are the scriptural authorities. Another type of authority is what you might call religious authorities. These aren't found in Scripture. Not that they're wrong or bad. They're just not found in Scripture. It's not a command of God that they would have these different roles. But these things, most of the year, both of these, these uh, roles evolved in Israel, especially after uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon was closed. When the prophet stopped speaking, uh, these two roles evolved, especially on a local level. And that is the role of elders and scribes. The elders would be the men of the church who led the church. I say church because that's what it would become later on in Christianity. It would be church. We draw our own idea of elders from what they did in the synagogues, right? It would have been synagogues for them. It's churches for us. That's where initially when the first uh, churches began to pop up, the disciples began to, apostles began to, to design the authority in these churches, and they just borrowed directly from synagogues and said, there are elders. And everyone understood exactly what it was. It would be uh, the men, the usually older men, who were qualified to lead those churches. And back then it would have been synagogues. Elders would have led in the synagogues. All across Israel, you would have synagogues for weekly worship, for observance of Sabbath, and the elders were the men who would lead. The scribes were the ones you might think of as academicians or, or professors, theology professors. These are men that supposedly gave their lives to studying the Bible. They supposedly were experts on the Word of God. They would, they would spend, perhaps they'd go to special schools. In fact, they would go to special schools and, and learn how to interpret Scripture. They were, again, this is not something that you find in Scripture, but they were religious nonetheless, these scribes. And they would provide the foundation for the elders to lead, there would be elders that could be scribes, and these men would provide the, really the theological foundation for, from which the other leaders would lead. So you have scriptural authority, you have religious, non-scriptural, maybe not anti-scriptural, but it's not found in scriptural, so you have scriptural authority, religious authorities. You also have a third category, which, what I would call, which is what I call theopolitical. Theo means theological, because all of these different camps come from a theological persuasion, but they are political parties, so to speak. They, they contrasted with one another, but they fit in a certain theological and political party. Who are these people? These people are, for instance, the most well-known ones are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the party that was the fundamentalist party in their day. They were the legalists. They, they, they said that they were very literal about the Bible, and they would come up with even more rules that you could even find in Scripture. We've gone through the Pharisees, how they not only tried to parse every last rule of the 600 rules you find in the Old Testament, but they tried to add to it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other laws and rules. These were the fundamentalists. They were extremely conservative, and they claimed, anyway, to follow the Bible. The Sadducees were their opposite. And again, this is a theological and political position, authority position in Israel. The Sadducees were those who were the theological liberals. Sadducees did not believe most of the Old Testament. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't like the miraculous. And they were sort of the liberals of the crowd of that day. That, again, was a theopolitical party. There is another party that you are familiar with, even if you don't know it. It's that, the party of the Essenes. The Essenes were ascetics. They, they lived apart from everyone else. They were the ones, the reason I say you would know them, they're the ones that would copy Scripture and put it in caves up near the Dead Sea. They didn't live in, in Jerusalem. They didn't live in populated places. They were like monks. They would go out and live in communes and hide away and copy Scripture very, very rigorous. It is said that John the Baptist may have had some time with Essenes and maybe where he picked up his way of living sort of in the wilderness and dressing like he did. You also have the Zealots, another theopolitical party. The Zealots believed that Israel should, had been given, granted by God to overthrow the Roman government. And the zealots were known for assassinating people. In fact, the word zealot comes from the word dagger because... 
There were instances where they would carry daggers in their cloaks, walk up to a Roman official, and stab him. These were the zealots. They believed it was their divine right to cast off, and in a violent way they could, cast off Roman rule. The zealots. I put in parentheses one other group in the theopolitical authorities list, and that is the list of the Herodians. Herodians, really you could be a Herodian, be a one or two, maybe a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but the Herodians were the ones that sort of acquiesced to everything the Roman government said, particularly through Herod. Herod was the Roman-appointed ruler, of of course Herod the Great, but going down to the different ways they broke it up in, in Israel. Herodians were those essentially who wanted to coordinate or work with and acquiesce to the government of that day. They were sort of the opposite of the zealots. So these are the people that had theopolitical authority. Finally, you had one more group of people who had authority or one more designation of authority, and that would be what I would call governmental authority. The Roman Empire had appointed a certain governmental structure in Israel. They did that through a group they call the Sanhedrin. Now, I want you to know the Sanhedrin Uh, initially was just groups of 23, almost like judges, who would rule in each town. It's almost like they had a court system across, all across Israel, ruled by these 23 judges, these these people who were part of this group, the Sanhedrin, and that's sort of the last place, if there was something that was unresolved, they would come and they would get it resolved with the Sanhedrin of each little village or city. But there was also the great Sanhedrin, When you read your Bible about the Sanhedrin, this is who it's talking about. It's not talking about the little Sanhedrins. It's talking about the great Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin was a group of men from all over Israel, 70 of them, that would gather in Israel, and they were sort of like the supreme court for Israel. And and these men would rule in Israel, and they would rule alongside these 70 men. They would rule alongside the chief priest. So there was really 71 of them, a chief priest and 70 of these sort of ruling men. Now, what you need to understand, with the exception of the Essenes and often the Zealots, if you were one of these leaders in one of these categories, you would fit in other categories as well. In other words, if you took the theopolitical position of a, of a Pharisee, you might be an elder who was also a priest. If you were a chief priest, you might also be a scribe who was a Sadducee. By virtue of being a, the chief priest, you would also be on the Sanhedrin, so you could be in some level of authority. You would have claim to authority in in all four of these categories, you see. I want you to listen very carefully. All of these folks who had this authority, they had a vested interest in keeping things the way they were. They didn't want to shake things up because they had power and money. We already talked about the kind of money this group would have made and all these positions would have made on uh, the Day of Atonement or, the, or leading, leading up to the Passover, right? They would, have, they would have made tons of money in the sales and money changing. They had a financial and a power interest in the status quo. It was to their benefit that things would remain the same. You ever wonder why senators and representatives don't ever talk about term limits? It's the same thing. The longer you serve... As a senator, a U.S. senator or representative, the richer you get. It is in your best interest to keep things the same. I'm not going to talk about term limits, and these people were no different. They didn't want to change anything. They didn't want to to tip the boat at all because everything gave them money and power and authority over people. It lined their pockets. They grew richer and richer as time went on. It was a system that they didn't want to turn over at all. Now, Jesus showed up. And he threatens this whole system. It was obvious from the very start, he wasn't just some random rabble-rouser. He was a guy who actually had clarity, and he spoke with authority. He had spiritual power. And the crowds, even though they were surfaced, there were crowds and crowds and thousands of people who loved him and who, who at least thought of him as a prophet. And Jesus here at the end, at his last week, begins to relentlessly confront this whole corrupt system. At every level, these authorities were corrupted. Whether it was scriptural or not, it was corrupted. Religious, it was corrupted. Of course, a theopolitical authority was corrupted. The government, governmental authority was corrupted. 
And here he is, his last week before his death, and he relentlessly confronts this whole corrupt system. And as we noted last time, he cursed it, and after that time it never existed again without an organization and power. Now this brings me to our first idea. Jesus demonstrated that false religion is marked by, number one, fearful insecurity. Fearful insecurity. Look what happened there, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You see what they're doing here? We have authority. We fit into one or more of these categories. This is the established status quo authority of the day, and you're in none of these. We do not recognize your authority to come in here, to turn over tables, to preach, to shout, to curse. You're not a scribe. You're not an elder. You're not a priest. You're not a leader in the, the Jewish sects. You're definitely not on the Sanhedrin. You have no authority to come in here and do this. So they come up sort of huffing and proud and beating their chest and demanding, who are you? What are your credentials? Who do you think you are? Where do you get your authority? And Jesus is going to turn this upside down and unveil that they're not tough after all. Behind this bravado is ultimately a fear of man. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, verse 24, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In this passage, I underline that phrase in verse 26, afraid of the crowd. You see, Jesus here is not being petty. I won't tell if you won't tell. No, he's unveiling for everyone to see that these people feared man. They feared that they might be overthrown. The power and the money and the structure was all set up on, uh, by, by them getting the, the adoration and living underneath them. They feared man. And if that whole system was, system was toppled, they would lose all their money and all their power, and so they feared man. This is true of all false religion. It is not built on eternal, unchanging, powerful, absolute truth found in the Word of God. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a con. It's deployed with marketing techniques, psychological techniques, business techniques. It's a scheme not dependent on the power of God, His Word plainly explained. Rather, it is dependent on setting up a system to dupe people and to dupe as many people as possible. It's all about the crowds. It's all about getting as many people as possible in on giving them money. It's built on hype. Sometimes it's built on threats. It's built on empty promises to lure people away from the truth. It's also built on discrediting anyone who would criticize them or put them to the test or unveil their sinful and mercenary desires. Why? Because the whole point was to get as many people in as possible so that they would gain more and more money and more and more power. No, I'm not talking about the essential oil industry. I'm saying I'm not talking about the essential oil industry. These people are deathly afraid of bad press, deathly afraid of being tested. They're deathly afraid of being challenged. They've learned to downplay anybody that would challenge them. They don't want any real testing because they want, in the end, the crowd to love them. They want to grow and grow and as many people as possible to embrace their product. Paul said to the Corinthians, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Now, these phrases that he uses, lofty speech or wisdom, and the other phrase, plausible words of wisdom, clearly do not mean he shied away from deep theological truth. Just read the Pauline letters written mostly to baby Christians in baby churches. They are, without question, some of the most weighty, weighty books in the Bible. They take a lot of brain power. Peter himself recognized sometimes they're hard to understand. So those phrases, lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom, this is a reference to the very popular style of public speaking in that day called the Greek monologue. It was all about impressing crowds, more and more crowds. It's all about drawing a crowd, impressing them, gaining bigger and bigger and bigger crowds, impressing more and more people. You could say slick, attractive, impressive teaching. I think what he's talking about is something that we see today on in the internet. It's called TED Talks, right? I'm sure you've watched a TED Talk. Wise, smart, people are engaged, makes you feel kind of smart to watch it. Right? You're not just watching stupid memes, you're watching a TED Talk. <laughs> makes you feel better about yourself. And Paul was a trained man. He could have deployed all these speech-making techniques of the Greek monologue and drawn in larger and larger crowd. He was an educated man. He could have done this, but he said, I did not do that. I simply came to you preaching Christ and Him crucified. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. I would never say that all the preachers or churches in the church growth movement are false or teaching false religion. There are plenty of earnest, believing, God-fearing, Bible-believing people in that movement. But the following aspect of the church growth movement is, in my mind, the most telling because it sounds so much like what we're reading here about these false teachers, these leaders of Israel's false religion. There's an obsession with crowd. There's an obsession with more. There's a fear of man. There's an obsession of being stylish or sophisticated or perhaps woke. Whatever you think lost people want, you provide it in order to get the crowd to come. And so the church growth industry that looks to the lost world, asks questions of the lost world, people who are not motivated by the Spirit, who have no business interpreting the Word of God, they look to the lost world and say, what do you think church should be like? What do you think church music should be like? What do you think church preaching should be like? How long do you think church sermons should be? What, whatever we, we can do, we will do to get you in our building. What do we have to do? It sounds so much like the false religion of Jesus' day. It is a fear of man. It is a fear of losing an audience. It's an all-consuming fear. It's an obsession for them. Sure, again, I know there are plenty of church growth guys who don't go all the way, but especially if you look at the top, at the, at the people who, lead, who have been leading the church growth movement, what you find is adrift further and further and further away from biblical truth. Why? Because the world doesn't want biblical truth. They will always tell you, if you shy away from biblical truth, we'll then come to your church. And so they move further and further away, dictated not by the truth of God's Word, not dictated to them by the, the dictates of the Bible. They are driven by the desires of man. The reason I use the word insecurity in this point is that the leaders of Israel's religion there remind me of, of that friend. We all had that friend in junior high school who was a chameleon. He'd be anything so long as you'd like him. He'll be a jock one day, a nerd the next day. He'll be a preppy the next day. I don't know if they have these divisions anymore in high school. Probably not. Do whatever, whatever I can do to make you like me. That kind of friend would just change their personality, their likes, their tastes, what they had, their, even their clothes, their hobbies, depending on who was around him. Why? Because the base issue in insecurity is the fear of man. All false religions are built not on truth, not on Scripture, but are obsessed with duping as many people as possible. It's the only way they stand, which is really a fear of man. Jesus unveiled to all the people that day that false religion was built on fearful insecurity. These people were afraid of man. What's another attribute? Primal insincerity. 
primal insincerity. By primal, I mean foundational. At their core, at the prime level, the basis of false religion is synthetic, not authentic. Jesus tells a parable here, beginning in verse 28. Let's just read it. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. What did the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Stop right there. The parable is about their surface righteousness. You notice how good this second son responded. I go. It even adds, sir. He has the right speech. He has all the right language. He even initially has the right actions. He has the, the attitude of obedience. But this parable is about their surface righteousness, their own surface righteousness, their own surface good deeds. They're able to produce those in abundance. They're able to, to really look good and look righteous. But underneath, as Jesus would say in another place, they are whitewashed tombs. They are nothing but death. And this makes a lot of sense in terms of what the Bible teaches about sin and man. The Bible does not teach that unsaved people, particularly people in false religion, can only do the most worst evil that they worst evil or worst sin as possible. The Bible does not teach that that lost people have 100% vile uh, motives or negative thoughts or words. No, any lost person can do some level of visible good. Here in the parable, the second son seems to be submissive. He, he says the right things. He looks like he runs up to his father. He looks so submissive and righteous and good. Now, this is true of so many people in false religions today. I've traveled all over the world, talked to people about their religion, from Catholics in Latin America to animists in Africa, Buddhists in Asia. And on the surface, there are many people who would be classified as really good, good people. The Bible doesn't teach that unsaved or those in false religion or even those leading false religion are not capable of any good whatsoever. What does the Bible teach? It teaches that at the core, whatever a lost person does is ultimately sin. Even if the surface is good, even if they've deceived them, their own hearts into thinking their motives are good, ultimately it's sin. Because it's not motivated by God, it's not motivated by a desire to follow Christ, it's not motivated by the Holy Spirit because they do not have the Holy Spirit. We can see lost people doing surface good things all the time. In fact, Hitler himself was capable of producing something of goodness, didn't always walk in and kick his dog, wasn't always angry and mean to his mistress, Katie. Forgot what her name was. Something. Someone will tell me later. The Bible teaches that if you peel back everything, there is no spiritual life there. There's nothing but death. In a primal sense, they're not motivated by the Spirit. They're motivated by their own desires. Ultimately, they are motivated by Satan himself. We all know this is true. We all know this is possible because we ourselves are capable of that kind of hypocrisy, right? We're, we're capable of, of putting on a veneer and even deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're okay in this. Never forget that line in Seinfeld where George is teaching Seinfeld how to lie, and he says, it's not a lie if you believe it. Just convince yourself it's not a lie, and it's not a lie. It's a veneer. That's why the Bible says in Psalms and in Romans, there's nobody good, not even one. Without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we are dead in our trespasses of sin. Colossians 2, Ephesians 2. Paul goes on to say that in our unsaved status, before we became Christians, we were by definition following Satan, the prince of the air, prince of the evil and the sons. We were joined the sons of disobedience. So by virtue of the fact that those who lead a false religion are not genuine believers, no matter how much morality they can produce, no matter how good they look on the surface, at their core they are wicked and insincere and ultimately disobedient, just like the second son in the parable. 
And let me say, just like everybody who's lost. This is where we, I think we need encouragement because a lot of times we look on the outward appearance and we say, well, there's a good people, a very kind, good neighbor, good friend. They seem, seem very good. So even if they're not Christian, maybe God will just sort of sweep them in, all the, uh, the activity at the end, and, and save them anyway, even if they're not Christian. Not true. Here Jesus is peeling back the layers of morality. These were the most moral people on earth, you could argue, at that time, because at least they were trying to obey what the Old Testament said. Here he is peeling back the layers of this morality and unveiling that these people are ultimately insincere and disobedient. How does he know this? Look at verse 32. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. When you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. When it came time, when truth came to your door, truth preached by God's man, truth pointing to Christ, calling for repentance, no matter how good you seemed to be to others, you refused to believe. And that's the ultimate issue. That's the primal issue. You can have a ton of moral deeds. You can have a lot of good, good activity. You can have all kinds of great accomplishments. But in the end, it's what you do with Jesus Christ. I made sure we read from 1 John today. I think your, our youth are actually memorizing some of this, or at least around this. Verse 19 of John 2, they went out from us because they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. How would we know? How could they know that those folks were not believers, not true Christians? Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Bottom line, at the core, no matter how good those surface works look, no matter how kind, no matter, no matter how good they were at following the rules, ultimately because they deny Christ and those who preach Christ, they are at the primal level insincere. They are frauds. They are fake. They are hypocrites like that tree we saw last week. Just like this son who proclaims submission to everyone and seems so sincere for a moment but never truly obeys. Primal insincerity, another attribute of false religion. Fearful insecurity, primal insincerity. Finally, number three, willful ignorance. A couple of things we see here, evidence that these guys willfully, purposely avoided truth. The first one is their ambivalence toward John in 25 and 27. Maybe I need to remind you the definition of ambivalence. It means you can go either way. If you're ambivalent about which movie to go to, you can go either way. If you're ambivalent about a person like they were toward John, you could feel negatively about him or positively about him. You could be either way. They had mixed feelings. They had ambivalent feelings about John's preaching and John himself. Ultimately, his preaching and John himself was all about Christ. Jesus asked them, verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from, from heaven or from man? Discussed it among themselves. We say from heaven. He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? If we say from man, they're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. They make this very clear. God does not give mercy toward those who are ambivalent about Jesus. Ambivalence to the gospel is rejection of the gospel. It's exactly what we see in the leaders. Now, they may have been curious for a while, but instead of listening and learning and testing the words of John and then following Jesus, looking to Scripture, looking to Jesus to whom John pointed, in the end, they just rejected it all. Ambivalence was just a sugar coating of rejection. They decided they would be ignorant about the things of John, ignorant about the things of Christ, not listen and learn. And they decided they would not accept any evidence contrary to their rejection of Christ. That's another thing we mark here about their willful ignorance. They rejected evidence. Look down on 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. He says, John came to you 
in the way of righteousness. We get it to get into our minds. This phrase, the way of righteousness, is loaded with meaning. It all started when God's appointed, appointed Adam as the first prophet to speak truth to the people. His, very, his first son, Abel, did the same thing. Moses came along many years later, did the same thing, and then he begins to, to show us that we need to test prophets. You can't just have someone claiming to be a prophet and speak for God. Test them. True prophets, prophets would agree with Scripture. They would agree with one another. They would be confirmed through the Word, often be confirmed miraculously. This is the way, the way of righteousness, the way of truth. One message, one theme, continuous from the very beginning of Scripture. The theme is Jesus Christ, the anticipation of the Messiah, the atonement of sin, began all the way in the Garden of Eden when sin first happened. John was the last Old Testament prophet that was in this the way of righteousness pattern. He was the last Old Testament prophet, and according to Jesus, the greatest Old Testament prophet, and he was a prophet who was in the way of righteousness. Jesus said, John came in the way of righteousness. He preached it. You had all the evidence in your hands, the Bible, you had it right there. Of all people, you should know, and looking at the Bible and all the prophecies that talk about an Elijah-like figure who would come, of all people, you would know this and you would see this. You would see that he was in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. And Jesus goes on to say, you saw mountains of evidence. What evidence? Prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors not being like our IRS agents. Tax collectors back then were a part of a big racket where they would basically steal money from people, extort money from people. Prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus said, you're watching these people understand that this man preached truth, that this man was in the way of righteousness and their lives are being changed, all a part of the fulfillment of Scripture. You saw the evidence. You saw the evidence of John. You saw the evidence of people coming to Christ, anticipating the Savior, believing in this truth, and repenting of their sin. You saw this, but you stuck your head in the sand and refused to believe in spite of all the evidence. Years ago, I got into a friendly discussion, was a friendly discussion with the regional Mormon bishop. Uh, I'm not even sure if that's what you called him. He wasn't uh, lower on the scale. He wasn't just a bishop at a local church. Uh, he was uh, somewhere higher up, and I know that because he was paid. If you know anything about the Mormon church, they don't pay pastors and local leaders and groups of leaders. Uh, you have to be kind of up in the system before you get paid. He Actually, in the, in the middle of our conversation back and forth, uh, he packed up and moved to Salt Lake City to work, you know, even as a higher position there at the Mormon church. But one subject that I asked him about from time to time was why Mormons fairly recently started rejecting that moniker, Mormon, and accepting and calling themselves even Christian. Instead of making out like they're just another Christian denomination, one option among many that Christians can choose from. I said, it seems a little deceptive, a little like modern-day marketing, like you're embarrassed about who you really are and you're adopting some sort of title that's popular. It just seems a little disingenuous. He said, oh, we're, we're Christian. We love Jesus. We teach out of the King James Bible, regularly read and teach the Bible. I said, well, those who are first called Christian in the Bible, there's a lot more to what they believed than just what you said. But I said, what's most interesting is that your, your founder, Joseph Smith, hated Christianity. And I took a passage out of, I think it's Pearl of Great Price, where Joseph Smith says, God told him Christianity is an abomination. And all branches of Christianity, he said, God told him were an abomination. For over 100 years, Mormons have rejected that title of being Christians. You know what he said? Nothing. Stopped emailing me. 
I don't think it's because he didn't have, I stumped him and he didn't have an answer. The LDS church has, has tried to provide an answer. They said, well, uh, uh, you know, we believe very similarly. It's not inconsistent to talk about ourselves as Christian. Uh, and, and when Smith talked about this, he was talking about the Christianity of his day, not of our day. But I think that's disingenuous because if you press them about what they believe about us, ultimately they do believe we're an abomination. They still believe what he believed. I don't think I stumped him. What happened here? Why did he stop talking to me? Willful ignorance. He made a choice. I'm not going to go here with him. I don't want to debate this. Evidence is all around to contradict Mormon doctrine, but there's willful ignorance. In fact, just to use this particular false religion, you remember the other week we talked about Jericho, and there in Jericho I said there's evidence of the battle of Jericho and the wall falling in on itself, and that happened in 1400 B.C., so almost 3,500 years ago. In fact, if you go all around Israel, you can find remnants. You can find evidence of things that you see in the Bible, wars, battles, cities, churches even. The Book of Mormon talks about all these battles, not thousands of years ago, but just a few hundred years ago. Massive battles, tens and hundreds of thousands of fighters and archers you know how much evidence there is for those battles? None. Not one arrowhead. Not one remnant of any city that they talk about being prominent. What about the DNA? You know, integral to Joseph Smith's whole argument is, of course, that Native Americans are Jewish. This is sort of central to the whole foundational idea of Mormonism, that the Native Americans are Jews that had come over and replanted true religion in Americas. Now, scientists have looked at the genetics. Native American Jews aren't related at all. You have to stick your head in the sand. Now, they would call that faith. We would call it stupidity. True faith may ask you to believe more than what evidence says, but it's not going to reject evidence. It's not going to reject history. It's not going to reject science. We don't ask people when they come to Christ, we don't ask people to say, be stupid, suspend rationale, avoid logic, start thinking stupidly. That's how you become a Christian. Not at all. In fact, I would say the most rational decision you can make is to follow Christ. I would say I like the evidence that we find again and again. It seems like to point to not just scientific but archaeological evidence that points to the truth of Scripture, the truth of even the gospel. So to embrace false religion is in some ways do what my Mormon friend did, and especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and that is to simply willfully be ignorant, to stick their heads in the sand. Now, Christian apologists categorize their practice of apologetics, of explaining the gospel, defending their faith, giving people a reason for our faith. They categorize it in different approaches. I'm not going to give them all. One approach is called fideism, and that just says, just believe and it'll all come around to you. Uh, another one, probably the most popular approach, is called evidentialism. This is Josh McDowell and many others who uh, like to use science and data and evidence to convince people of the gospel. I have little to say against evidentialism. I think there's certainly a place for it. I love how science and archaeology evidences build up to support Scripture. However, I think evidentialism is largely ineffective. Why? Because of willful ignorance. That doesn't change people's hearts. That doesn't change them, giving them statistics, science, evidence, dump them in their lap. They've already decided we're going to be willfully ignorant They're going to take everything that you give me and reinterpret it in a biased way and change what it means and change how it's said. I prefer what's called a presuppositionalist approach. You look at their core commitments as a lost person. You go to the heart of where, what they believe. In the end, though, I believe in the Holy Spirit. God, by the Spirit, through the Word, must awaken a person's heart. Try to give people truth. Well, our story today is a story of almost humorous defeat Religious leaders are after Jesus. They're trying to get him to condemn himself. They show up, beating their chest. He sends them away with their tail between their legs. He unveils for everyone the folly of their false religion. Our application can be pretty simple. One, don't fall for false religion. That is to say, always catch 
in your own heart, check your own heart, check truth. There are all kinds of false religions out there, much like Judaism of that day, that say they are all about the Bible, that quote Scripture, that seem that they are angels of light, but in fact, in fact they are false and of Satan. Two, don't believe that because people involved in false religion are, seem sincere or seem good or do good things, they are going to be sort of swept up into heaven just because of their goodness, regardless of what they do with Christ. No, it's clear. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And third, understanding, understand that when you work with people who are deceived by false religion, whether it be a formal false religion like Mormonism or whatever, or it be something just the religion they make up in their own minds, their own secular way of living, Understand that God will do a work in them in the context of faithful presentation of the gospel. So try to get the gospel out and pray for their hearts. Pray that God's Spirit would move in them and awaken them. False religion is built on insecurity, insincerity, ignorance. And the truth is, we should be grateful. We are no smarter than anybody who's caught up in false religion. We're no better than anyone without Christ. We're no more moral than anybody on ourselves without Christ. Paul says of the lost world, the lost and dying world, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. So let's trust in the power of God's Spirit through His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for these amazing truths. Thank You for Jesus confronting the false religion of the day. And again, Lord, we don't want to put our aim or our hatred to those who are caught up in false religion, though we can uh, have great animosity toward those who lead the false religion. Lord, may we show mercy and kindness to those who are caught up in false religion. May we understand that we are no different than anybody else who's caught up in these things. We are saved by simply the mercy of God, not because we're smarter or better or more moral or have greater spiritual sensitivity. It is simply by the mercy that You have given us. So, Lord, we thank You for that. We glorify You for that. And may we take your wondrous work and announce it to our friends and family and all across the world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. It's benedictions inspired by 2 Timothy 2, 15-19. Knowing that there are false teachers, false prophets, and false religions all around... And we go from here seeking to be unashamed, an unashamed worker, rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen.